Okay, are we ready with the sting, maestro? Music, if you please. You know how this goes. Well, I hope you do. You're the wrong fucking podcast. All right, so at the end, I want a big old bangly bang. Are ready? Are we ready? Here we go. On the Empire Podcast this week, we're live at King's Place London at the London Podcast Festival. Yes, indeed. Very good. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. And you have no idea how close you came to seeing my legs, folks. <laughs> no idea. My thin, pasty, white Irish legs would have been on display. They were on display a couple of hours ago. I actually turned up here in shorts. And I decided to change out of shorts and into jeans to spare your eyes this evening. Um, couple of reasons for that. Number one, I was worried that if I sat down in this chair and did the podcast that my little lad would, <laughs> would peep out. But no, no not peep. Um, slowly unfurl. <laughs> and nobody wants that. Uh, second of all, I was told my legs were too bright and they would blow out the cameras for the people watching the streaming at home. The third thing was, it's just too fucking sexy. <laughs> It's just too sexy. And we don't want a full-blown Event Horizon-style orgy breaking out <laughs> in the audience tonight. Eyes being ripped out and rutting and thrusting and all that kind of stuff. Frankly, it would be a logistical nightmare. <laughs> there are about 350 of you in this room tonight, and that is far too many limbs for me to even think about. Uh, not least because I hadn't even factored in my three colleagues of such lethal cunning into the sexual equation. Um, <laughs> they'll be so glad to know. <laughs> Shall we meet them in a non-sexual manner, uh, that is? Uh, first up... <sighs> a year ago, we lost a queen. <laughs> this one's for you, Queenie! Luckily, we haven't lost a gig queen. Will you please welcome Helen O'Hara! I'd like to apologize for all of that. That was, I'm sorry. Oh, you've, <laughs> the worst is yet to come. Oh, I, I have no doubt. The worst is yet to come. Speaking of which. <laughs> Next up is a man who made a, quite frankly, disgraceful joke on this week's Ahsoka spoiler special for anyone who heard that. Um, a joke about flicking Sabine. <laughs> a joke that is so abhorrent he has been ostracized by, well, every community. Uh, and yet, somehow, also won best joke at the Edinburgh Fringe. Please welcome. Our great big fucking nerd, James Dyer! Hello, Christopher. Hello, James. In I... fairness, I have to say, yeah. a lot of us do like a good bean flick. <laughs> Ronin. Yeah. Goldeneye. Yeah. The Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. All solid. Sean Bean flicks. Jesus. Do you like anyway. my tiny can of Coke? It's so I can pretend to be Galactus. 
I hunger <sighs> for your love. That comes later. Yes, indeed. Um, anyway, apologies to Ben's parents who are in the <laughs> auditorium tonight. Um, speaking of which, uh, will you please welcome a man who's been walking around with plenty of time to kill since he hosted a spectacularly successful uh, Shrek version of his Disney podcast, Disney Diversity, today at the London Podcast Festival. Um, I don't believe his guest on Disney Diversity today was the frozen severed head of Walt Disney, which is a shame because here is a man who knows a lot about frozen severed heads. Will you please welcome... <laughs> the nicest man in podcasting and serial killing, Ben Travis! Hello. I haven't heard a single word backstage. What have I missed? Everything is fine. It was okay, all good. Great. All your, good. Your parents are very proud. So, yeah, where should we start, folks? Should we start with... We're going to mix it up. It's a live show. Sure. We usually have listener questions at this point, but we're going to save those for the end, so get your thinking caps on uh, for any questions you want to ask us, and how dare you uh, is not a question that we will accept, by the way. Uh, so, let's talk about movie news first. What has been happening in the world of movie news? I feel like I've been asking this a lot during the strikes, yeah. and the answer is frequently, fuck all. Although in this case, the answer seems to just be Taylor Swift, right? Like that seems to be what's happening in movie news. That's your answer to everything. Though. Admittedly, <laughs> admittedly, that is true. Thirty-seven million dollars in pre-sales in the first twenty-four hours of her era's concert tour, which is insane. So it's more a case of I'm the solution. It's me. <laughs> yeah, um, very much so. Because bear in mind, so so Force Awakens did twenty million, and Endgame did fifty. So that's a lot of money. That's a lot of fucking money. That, that's true. Like, it doesn't necessarily translate the same way, does no, it? No, it's true, isn't it? They're, they're like... Well, they're, so this is a concert film that she has yes. recorded herself, that she yeah. has organised, arranged. She went to the studios yeah. and they offered her... Well, not the her... studio. She went straight to the exhibitors. Okay, so, she went yeah. to the exhibitors and they... Uh, yeah, but she went to the studios at one point and they weren't giving her what she thought it was worth. So she, so said, she went straight you. to the distributors, uh, to the exhibitors and is now making hella bank. Yes, uh, yes she is. Uh, so, Look so, yeah. what they made her do. Exactly. <laughs> I cannot wait Bad for whatever blood. song she is going to write about the distribution <laughs> situation in Hollywood. <laughs> that is going to be the most savage diss of all time. I'm shining like fireworks <laughs> over your empty cinema foyers. <laughs> what she's going to sing. Right yeah. now, she's looking for things that rhyme with Saslav. Yeah. <laughs> 100% true. Yeah. Uh, and Sa you know, like, even Deadline is running. Do you see the Dazzler story that they insist on running, even though there is no evidence at all to suggest, despite Ben's campaign, that she will be playing Dazzler in the MCU. But this is a thing that, that will not die. I haven't seen that. No. So, well, it's, it's a rumour that's been going around forever based on, I guess, wishful thinking. Yeah, and I think there's like a comics thing where uh, Dazzler is envisioned as a version of Taylor Swift or something. Mm. Mainly, she's busy mates with Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. And that is Well, they've the said Deadpool theme. as well, haven't they? That she might... Yes, that's it's where, Deadpool yeah. that she's expected yeah. to make yeah. a little cameo in. Does it, anybody know who Dazzler is? Of course. There you okay. go. I know you do, strange person in the crowd. I know you do, but like, does everybody else? Is there anyone here who doesn't know who Taylor she's Swift is? She's the one who. <laughs> she's Where the mutant whose power is disco. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Dazzler or Taylor Swift? Yes. Yeah. It does make perfect sense because when she walks in the room, she does make the whole place shimmer. So I've heard. Oh. 
we've just lost you two. To yeah, you've lost us down, down a swifty lyric column. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, but, but yeah, so, so like Dazzler literally sings and dances and then like essentially she's her own light show. So you save a fortune. She turns sound into light. Yeah, I because, believe. you know, but, mm. she, but she doesn't turn it's sound into light because there's still sound. <laughs> yeah, all the sound doesn't go away. It's yeah. still there, but yes. Yeah, so anyway, I'm just yeah. saying you could you could save a fortune on a concert tour. You know, if like Coldplay or somebody just hired her, they could save all these tens of millions that they pay, or indeed if Taylor Swift was able to hire Dazzler. Don't come at the Eras tour with me. I'm just right. saying she could save all that money. So anyway. my understanding is that you're talking about something that is exclusively American at the moment, that yes. this is unlikely to come over here for a while because she hasn't... Well, end of next year, I would tour. suspect. Over here. All right, so yeah. why are we wasting our time with this? <laughs> Have you is met it so, them? Is it so I can mention that I'm seeing the Eras tour like months before James? Is that the reason we're... Just oh, no spoilers, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't ruin the plot for me. <laughs> She sings some songs. <laughs> Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, I can name one Taylor Swift song, and it's that one about shaking it off. I don't know what the title's called. I'll tell you afterwards. All right, okay. Good. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, so anything else? Trailers. So many trailers and nothing else. Yeah, so many trailers. Really? Yeah, yeah. pretty much nothing else. Oh, no. Very little. Um, All right. But there were trailers for uh, Monarch something of the something? Yeah, Legacy of Monsters. Legacy of Monsters, um, which is the uh, TV show spin-off from Godzilla. Which we will cover on the Pilot TV podcast. Why do I don't? Why do I even bother? Don't encourage him. Don't encourage him. Um, And yeah, this has uh, Kurt Russell and Wyatt Russell as young Kurt Russell's character. um, You know, in two timelines dealing with big giant monsters. Mm. Whoever is doing Godzilla's publicity has been absolutely on one this week. I don't know if Godzilla is SAG, if he's allowed to like promote shit. No, I believe but... uh, Godzilla has bypassed the studios to go straight to <laughs> the cinema chains on this one. Because not only did the Monarch Legacy of Monsters trailer came, come out this week, also this week we got the trailer for Godzilla Minus One, which is the new Japanese Toho Godzilla movie. Uh, the first one that they've done since cool. Shin Godzilla, so like seven years years ago was the last one and uh, so yeah the week started with a new Godzilla trailer and ended with a new Godzilla trailer and that is how I like my weeks to go that's exciting I haven't seen the trailer for that yet but uh, that's that seems it's to be pro- an exciting proper one monsters in it, proper, you know, yeah it's good you know yeah they're throwing some money at it you know some of the some of that iPhone 15 money they've, they've, they've pre-banked it that's going to be announced on Tuesday. I cannot wait. This phone is a pile of shit now, and uh, <laughs> it may be—it may turn into a brick during this podcast. In which case, yikes! Um, but yeah, I'm excited about that. But there are actual films as well that will be released in cinemas that we can talk about also. Cats, not what? actual cats. Not more Taylor but, Swift, Jesus. No, no, not more Taylor Swift. Not to release the bum hole cup. Uh, <laughs> So James, that sounds <laughs> really bad. Okay. Crucially, not Taylor Swift. History, just, that's not that's where I was going with this at all. Um, but so, so you know how Strays was obviously a film about dogs. There's going to be Stray, singular, which is a film about a cat. A so spin-off? Uh, no, it's not a spin-off. It's so it's based on the PlayStation game Stray, in which you play a cat oh, and you can do things like sleep <laughs> and lick your own bum hole. So, so it was just. You know, but nice. I do that anyway. <laughs> now you can do it on screen. Uh, but so Nick Bruno, who co-directed Nimona, is is going to be helping adapt this. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I found the game quite boring. I'm really sorry, but uh, but it's you know people like it. It's quite cool. It's like a buddy story uh, between a cat and a robot. 
Because that's the thing. They were like, what if we made a game where you can play as a cat? And everyone was like, yeah, that sounds amazing. I just want to like run around as a cat. And then they went, it's set in a dystopian future. You must cross <laughs> this ruined city in tiny cat form. But yeah, the people who made Nimona, it's going to be Annapurna Pictures, yep. uh, the animated arm of Annapurna, who are looking after Stray. And yeah, if you've not watched Nimona yet, what are you, what oh. are you doing? What are you doing? So Watch good. Nimona on Netflix. So good. But it is, like, it is a very beautiful atmospheric game. I am aware of it. I am not aware of most games, but I am aware of this one. And it does have a certain energy to it. It's kind of cool. I think it could be good. It's going to be cinematic catnip. Whoa. Hey! hey. The last of us? I, I don't know. <laughs> I got nothing. Uh, there are some more trailers. The trailer for Eli Roth's Thanksgiving came out this week. Uh, yeah. Anyone see it? I did, yeah. I feel yeah. like it's, it's an interesting one. So it's a, it's a horror movie. It seems to be a bit of a slasher. It's set at Thanksgiving. It is the a- adaptation, the full feature-length adaptation of the fake trailer from, from Grindhouse. Of course it is. I was well aware of that. I had not forgotten it. I was, I was, yeah. At all. Um, and it's, yeah, it's somebody dressed up as a pilgrim with the hat and the mask and everything. Um, it looks gnarly, like really unpleasant. Very the unpleasant. Bit, the freezer, the freezer bit, is, bit is not nice. That's I do not, not like nice. it. But it's also, like... I, I do think like Thanksgiving, I feel like, has been a little bit overlooked for horror movies. We've got Christmas ones. We've got Halloween ones, obviously. Um, but Thanksgiving has, has kind of escaped scot-free, as it were, until now. Indeed. I'm, I'm all for like random holiday horror movies. We, need, we always need more of those. Give me more holiday-themed horror movies. But These guys mentioned the, um, the freezer scene, which if you haven't seen this trailer yet, you know when you eat a fab lolly, but it's fresh out the freezer and your tongue gets a bit stuck to it and for like half a second you really panic and think, oh my yeah. God, I'm going to rip my own tongue that, out with a fab lolly. That happened to me when I was a kid. I'm, I'm sorry, what? No word of a lie. That happened to me. Not with a fab lolly, but with an ice cube. I, I licked an ice cube tray, and it got stuck to my tongue. What? I was a kid. I was stupid. I didn't realize. And I just went, ooh, ice cubes. And I licked it, <laughs> and it got stuck to my tongue. And my mum and dad, who weren't you know, the, the sharpest when it came to things like that. They ain't the they, sharpest they tools like, in the shed. No, they weren't. They were like, they were just like, they were just like, rip it off. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my tongue, my tongue had bled. It bled. No. Yeah. Never and this is why dumber. everybody should watch a Christmas story <laughs> before the, licking an ice cube tray. Ideally to teach them not to. Yeah. Or like Dumb and but Dumber or something. Yeah. Basically that happens in the Thanksgiving trailer, but it's somebody's whole face on a freezer door. It looks horrible. Yeah, yeah. that is the correct dun- reaction. Dunks her face in like water first. Oh. And then presses it against the freezer door. And she's just like, ah! And you go, God, that is complete overkill. And then you go, oh, yeah, it's an Eli Roth movie. That is what people are here for. I am so excited about Jeff Nichols' The Bike Riders Mm. because Tom Hardy has discovered a new fucking (laughs) stupid voice. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And it is very exciting. And uh, Jeff Nichols went, hey, Tom Hardy, uh, I want you to play a really tough biker. And Tom Hardy goes, yep, yep, I've been thinking about the voice. Really tough biker. How about he talks like that? <laughs> it's a little bit like chop and squally in the middle of a bike movie. Set in like 60s Boston. Yeah. It's like, are we going to hear Tom Hardy's Boston accent? No, we're going to hear whatever the hell that is. Yeah. yeah. What a lovely, lovely bike. <laughs> It'd be very painful for you. <laughs> It's just like Tom's of Anarchy, isn't it? Like it's a slightly. It is, it is very much. Yeah. yeah. 
But it's got Austin Butler looking hunky. Shannon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you were saying he was looking handsome, and I I said, like, he's handsome without being attractive, and then you you proved that. Who here would fuck Austin Butler? Okay, You're all lying. From, apart from bragging rights, like, I did, like he's handsome, but like not. Not anyway. as Fade Routher necessarily, although. <laughs> Just saying. Space nappy not included. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, you know, Tom Hardy. Michael Shannon's in it. Too. Really tough biker. Also, uh, just want to say Jodie Comer's in that. She and is. We respect and love Jodie Comer in everything. But let Jodie Comer be Scouse. Somebody please <laughs> let Jodie Comer be Scouse. She's doing a very good Boston accent, but just yeah. somebody tap into that power. It's the fucking busies! <laughs> it's, what she, it's what she used to say. <laughs> It's a fucking busy. Jeff Nichols lets Tom Hardy do whatever he wants. It's true. It is true. There was some. There was some other news that wasn't related to trailers. So in the MCU, my beloved MCU, uh, Echo, 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 Echo. Echo. <laughs> unrehearsed. <laughs> unrehearsed. Unrehearsed. Obviously, has been pushed back, 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 back. <laughs> to. Uh, I'll be honest, I didn't fully read the story, but. Um, <laughs> It's been pushed back to next year. All episodes are going to be dropping at one still for that, which is a very good sign. And uh, Agatha, Coven of Chaos, which was called Agatha, House of Harkness. This is the Catherine Hahn starring spin-off from WandaVision because everyone loved her character and they wanted to bring her back. Um, has been renamed yet again. Trouble at Mill. Uh, Agatha, Darkhold Diaries is what this is going to be called, and it's been pushed back pretty much a year now. It's been Darkhold Diaries all along, yeah. okay? <laughs> it is easily the worst of the three titles. It I is. do not know why they have gone for Darkhold Diaries. But does it not sound a bit like, feels like a, like a teen movie now, doesn't it? Oh, the Darkhold Diaries. It's yeah. just like... Um, and maybe, genuinely, maybe they're leaning into that. My personal maybe. pet theory about this show has been that it's going to be like what WandaVision was to TV. This is going to be to musicals. It's going to be like Schmigadoon. No, please no. But MCU, because Catherine Hahn, Sold. but we know that the Anderson Lopez's of Frozen and Agatha All Along fame have sort of let slip in interviews, oh yeah, we have written songs, songs <gasps> plural for this show. Patti Lapone is in it. Ben, you had my curiosity. Now you have my attention or whatever that line is. <laughs> it's one of the two. It's either you had my attention, now you have my curiosity, mm-hmm. or it's you had my one. curiosity, now you have my attention. Either way, you have my curiosity slash attention. I'll be honest, I would like neither at this point. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited. That it, that could be really fun, it, and it, and they need to try something a bit new and different because that is what consistently has worked for them is doing yeah. things that aren't consistent, um, and the last few things have not been super cool. No. So you know, if it takes a little bit longer and then they bring us a freaking MC musical, that sounds great to me. An MC musical. <laughs> oh my <sorry>. god. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I think you've just described my Google search history tonight. Uh, Your Pornhub history. Oh, yeah. And if one doesn't exist, I shall make one. Uh, all right, a couple of other things. Uh, some very, very sad news that the writer of Weekend at Bernie's passed away uh, at the age of 81, um, thus scuppering my plans for a Weekend at Bernie's reunion. 
or maybe enhancing them. Um, the inevitability of that yeah. gag. I know. How many people here have seen Weekend at Bernie's, though? Okay, 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 okay. So that's better than we, I thought. We discussed this about whether or not Weekend at Bernie's was something... Like, people understand the premise broadly, I think. I think if they've heard of it, they've heard of the premise. Yeah, but maybe, maybe. haven't seen it. No. Yeah. What is the premise of Weekend at Bernie's for the five people in this audience who have not There's seen it? There's quite a lot of people who haven't seen it. It's basically, they, they try to make a dead person look alive for a weekend. That's right, yes. Yes. So, Comedy. 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 <laughs> and they did a sequel. <laughs> they did a sequel with the same dead guy. <laughs> Any other movie news? Have we scraped the bottom of the barrel? <laughs> I mean... Uh, all right, time for guests. Shall we have a guest? Let's. Yes. All right, and boy, do we have guests for you folks. But before you meet any of our guests in the flesh, here's one we made earlier. Um, this week sees the release of Celine Song's directorial debut, Past Lives. Woo! Woo! Widely hailed as one of the year's best movies. It's about two childhood friends, played by Greta Lee and Teo Yu, who reunite for a couple of days, decades after she emigrated from South Korea. Do sparks fly? Are deep thoughts thunk deeply? <laughs> Does one of them die and is then manipulated for the rest of the movie? <laughs> By a complicated series of pulleys and levers? <laughs> God, I hope so. Was that the first question for Celine's song? <laughs> I think it should basically happen in every movie, uh, to be honest. Anyway, it's an amazing film. It's so damn good that when Celine's song came to London this week, we sent Nick DeSemlian along to have a lovely chat with her on Zoom, even though they were both in London. Don't really understand that, but anyway. Uh, 20 years from now, they'll meet up and they'll talk about this and they'll have a big old laugh. <laughs> It'll be great. Uh, anyway, uh, you're not gonna hear that. Here it is, enjoy. Celine Song, very, very happy to have you. Uh, welcome you onto the Empire Podcast. Um, Past Lives is one of my favorite films of the year. Absolutely love it. So really thrilled to be talking to you. So glad to be talking to you. Are you happy? You must be happy with how it's being received. You've been showing it around the world. Um, has that been like a lovely experience, kind of getting getting the feedback? Well, I think it's it's been such an amazing thing because I still think that um, you know uh, you know the way that I have sort of always felt about the movie is that um, you know because it is such a personal story and it, because it is so connected to just honestly a feeling and it's an ephemeral feeling, and because of all that, I think I felt like. Um, every time that uh, the audience members or come up to me and tell me how they themselves connected to it, or you just have a kind of a global audience uh, whose language is not my own, um, you know, respond to it in an amazing and warm way. Just I just know that it makes me feel uh, like less alone in it, less alone in uh, this particular feeling that I that I know that it's a universal feeling. This feeling that there's some connections that. Um, survive uh, decades and continents. Yeah, yeah well, I think the emotions in the film really hit everybody, no matter where you're from. Um, but have you shown it in South Korea and New York? And has that been because the action in the film is sort of divided between those two two places? Has that been particularly special showing the film in those places? Well, actually, I think uh, the movie hasn't come out in uh, in Korea. I think it's going to come out like early next year. Mm -hmm. So I actually don't know what it's uh, what the Korean audience is going to think, uh, South Korean audience is going to think. But I know that in New York City, um, yes, absolutely. I think that I it's sort of where I consider home, and I think that uh, the audiences in New York and uh, you know respond to it as only the New Yorkers can, which is that like they feel connected to the 
part of the story that is about um uh immigration that is about uh you know uh following your dreams or you know whatever version of that is and then of course uh love which i think is a universal thing but yeah. i think love in new york city is such a um special thing on its own too so i think new york city yeah very much is still playing in new york you know yeah <laughs> in, um yeah i mean it's just the way you shoot the statue of liberty that's been done so many times in films but felt very feels very fresh in past lives was that quite a daunting thing to to do that scene and try and pull it off in a new way well i think what's what's so funny is when i uh you know when we were talking about shooting at the statue of liberty uh most of my crew hadn't been to statue of liberty because they're new yorkers and just like you know my joke is always like it's like i don't know how many londoners like go to london eye you know what i mean like but yeah. every tourist does but i just knew that this was uh such a liberty was an important place to shoot for this movie because the movie is um uh about a, a tourist and uh an, immig an immigrant so and for and you know hesong is a tourist and nora is an immigrant and these are two main characters in the film and as for where they were going to go i thought that it actually had such a weight uh, symbolically to go to Statue of Liberty because it is a symbol of uh, immigration and it is also um, a, like a must-see for every tourist, you know. So I think because of that, I think it just felt like such a, an important a piece of the locations that we wanted to go to in the movie. But I think that's something that I know that uh, me and my DP, Shebe Krishner, and I were talking about so much is that uh, we wanted it to feel, uh, in like what you're saying, it has to be shot differently. It has to be shot like it's actually somebody uh, who's on a boat who's approaching such a liberty. And so, for example, uh, we wouldn't want a drone shot, right? We wouldn't want a helicopter shot. <laughs> You know, or we wouldn't want to shoot it in a way where it's, it's just way too wide or something like that. I think so much of it, we wanted it to feel like we were approaching it and that it feels like, a, it, you know, the, the Statue of Liberty herself, she feels human, you know, yeah. it's a part of the kind of the way that we want to depict New York City, which is a, a place where uh, people live. It's, 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 a, it's meant to be a humanist depiction of it. Yeah. Is there a lot of uh, red tape involved in shooting the Statue of Liberty? Um, is it fairly straightforward? It was amazingly the one of the easiest locations to be able to shoot, actually, because we just had to uh, find a boat that has uh, that is allowed to get close to it, and then we just needed to get on the boat. And I think uh, because of that, uh, all you had to do is uh, get the boat. So rest of the rest of New York City, because on land, it's so much harder to shoot there because it's very this property, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> compared to a boat. All you have to do is rent the rent the boat. You know, yeah, so it was kind of easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just going back to the, the the screenings that you've been having, has there been any unusual, uh, you know, because pe people are finding the film very moving. I found it very moving. People are kind of, uh, you know, it feels like a personal film for a lot of people. Uh, have, have there been unusual conversations you've had off the back of people seeing it? Well, I think that, you know, I've heard, um, you know, I think this what's what's been the the power of the film is that it, really uh does ma it does matter who the person who's watching it is and wh where they are in their life and where they are in their love life too so you know so i, I feel like what's honestly been the most amazing part is the uh and and the and the and the funniest part is that everybody has a completely different experience of it depending on where you are or who you are um and it's like you know if you're 16 and never been in love versus if you're 60 and you haven't been in love for a long time Right. I think there is a way in which that like they're going to watch the movie so differently. 
Um, and they're going to think about the ending very differently too. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I heard some everything between, you know, like um, people who are in relationships. I heard both um, people say, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm I'm in a relationship, and I, this movie made me want to go home and hug my partner and mm. tell them I love them and appreciate them. And I'm so grateful that they're going to be the ones that. Uh, grow old with them right mm. and then of course i heard the completely the other side where it's like well i need honestly the movie made me realize that i'm in a bad relationship and i need to get out you know <laughs> and i think that and when it comes to people who are single it's both that people are saying like you know it, you know this movie made me made me realize that i should maybe fly out to that place uh many hours away and then mm. just like spend a week with that person that i feel like i have a connection with and to see if that is something that is worth pursuing and then on the other hand, I also heard it's like, well, your movie actually made me get over my ex. You know, mm. now I'm now I'm actually fully over my ex because of the movie. So wow. I do think that um, it the what's been the best part is the uh, sort of the uh, variety. You know, yeah, it must variety be and, strange yeah. to have made something that's kind of helping people with life choice make life choices. It's quite <laughs> a responsibility. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that it really, I think it's meant to uh, reveal. Uh, who the who who you are, right? Because yeah. I feel like it's there's just one this one way that our Nora's life is, but of course it depends on a million things, right? Like the Nora, um, you know, Nora is very much loved by her husband, for example, um, and I think that when in the absence of that, I think that uh, it, it would feel very very different, or it should be very different. But I think it's yeah. like yeah, I think so much of it is about, um, and I think that's really at the heart of what the movie. Uh, I wanted the movie to be, which is that I wanted it to be um, three grown-ups who uh, who we met, who even meet a couple of them as children. So we know that there is that kid in them. There is a twelve-year-old yeah. kid inside of them. But it's about the three adults who um, are trying to navigate a situation where someone is going to be heartbroken, but um, they're going to still navigate it. They're they're going to try, and I think that to me the trying uh that the characters are doing is the what's important but the what 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 i think is at the heart of the movie you know so yeah. it's like you know um i remember um john magaro who plays a lot of the characters arthur he has to speak a bit of korean in the film mm-hmm. and he asked me because and and he does speak a little bit of korean because he actually is married to a korean american himself mm-hmm. so he speaks a little bit of korean and he was um uh, asking, it's like, sh- I need, should I get a little bit better at Korean, right? He Should I get a little bit more fluent? Because his Korean is, you know, very bad in the movie. <laughs> his Korean is not very good. And I and he was like, maybe I should try to get better. And he wanted to put in the work to do that. And I told him, I was like, well, no, we're not trying to make a movie about somebody who's good at Korean, right? We're trying to make a movie about someone who's trying. So in fact, the level of Korean that you have, which is not a very good, very bad Korean, is what uh, works about the character. You know, mm-hmm. you actually, you actually don't need a character who is, you know, fluent and amazing at it. You want somebody who's trying to say hello to uh, his wife's old friend in Korean. You know, yeah. 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 Well, you've taught me and, and everyone who's seen the film a bit of Korean in the in the form of Inyun, which is a phrase yeah. that I'm, it's amazing. I'm using it a lot in work meetings and at the post office. Um, where did you first hear the phrase Inyun and can you kind of explain quickly what it means? 
Well, I grew up a little bit in uh, in Korea, and I think that it is kind of if you're a part of Korean culture at all, it is actually a pretty commonplace uh, word. It is something that you know in the film, uh, Nora says that you know you know Inyon is just something Koreans say to seduce someone, and I think that's actually very true. Like it's very easy to really let it become a part of your life, and I'm so happy to hear that you use it in your uh, work conversation because I think that's how it's meant to be. It's not meant to be this uh, precious. Uh, weird thing it's meant to be something that is an everyday thing because even like you know like you and me like talking over zoom about this and i and i hope you and i get to talk again in the future but maybe this is it maybe this is the mm. uh you know this is a um uh, 20 minutes that we spend where we get to talk about a movie i mean my first movie right mm. and i think that it's very uh even this i know is inyan right because that's mm. how broad and how it's very deep because it, of course, talks about many lifetimes, but it is also something that you can use in an everyday way. And, you know, in this life, you and I are, you know, just, you know, a journalist and a filmmaker talking about a movie uh, over Zoom, of all things. But maybe like 200 lifetimes ago, maybe we were parent and child, right? And then maybe 200 lifetimes before that, maybe we were uh, lovers and then maybe we almost got married, right? And then maybe mm. 200 lifetimes before that, Maybe we were like enemies and we were going to, mm. uh, you know, maybe one of us killed the other, right? And then <laughs> and then maybe 200 lifetimes before that, maybe we just bumped into each other in the street. So yeah. I think there's a way in which that even something as small as, as this, which is a work conversation, I think that even those things can have the weight of hundreds of uh, connections that have come before. And in another life, maybe we were something else to each other, right? Yeah. So I think that in that way, I think the concept of Inyon is has this amazing contradictory thing where it is both light and something you can use every day. And in fact, I think it's best when it's used every day as in like, huh, this person, you know, like you and Patrick have a, you know what I mean? There's so much of it where you can sort of uh, deal with it in a light way. But also with all of that, you're able to think of it in such a deep way as in you can think of it as like, well, it is still a miracle that. Uh, these two people who may not be from the same walks of life ended up in this zoom together you yeah know? yeah it gets you thinking it gets you thinking about all your interactions and um and you mentioned zoom so this is your first film and one of the things you do brilliantly is you make skype calls look cinematic which can't be an easy thing because there's there's a portion of the film where there's a lot of long distance video calls going on how do you make that exciting and cinematic well, I think that, you know, I would always talk about it as the uh, great, great, great shark, you know, in the making of the movie. I was really worried about uh, it. I think that's, I think the Skype section was a part that scared me the most, precisely because of that. And I think um, because, uh, but something that I knew that was the at the heart of uh, how I wanted to make the section in Skype is that I wanted to feel tangible. And then the way that we actually encounter technology. It just has to feel connected to the way we actually deal with technology. So when uh, the, the main characters um, see each other for the first time over Skype, what is amazing about it is that even though the connection isn't great, which by the way is by design, um, we wanted the connection to be bad. Mm. It, you know, the, the characters are treating the moment like it's a miracle. Right, because it is a miracle. How amazing that! And I think that um, those of us who were there when Skype was uh, first uh, starting, but we we just it was just an amazing thing where we were like, oh my god, this is like Star Trek, you know? <laughs> like we could like we could talk to each other over video. It's incredible, right? 
So I think that that was, um, so there's a part of it where it's a miracle, but the technology, um, you know, stays the same as your, the character's desire to be closer and to talk to each other and hug each other and touch each other. That desire starts to grow and the same bad technology that at first felt like a miracle then starts to feel like it's a real hindrance or a Mm -hmm. real obstacle and you become very annoyed with it. You become very upset and frustrated. And I think that that really is uh, because it is connected to uh, psychology and because it's connected to uh, a human feeling, then I think that that's how uh, that sequence could uh, survive, you know, in the film, um, how it could thrive in the film. Uh, and I think the part of that it is, is that, you know, the, yeah, we, we built uh, two sets to be able to do that. To that, to do that sequence, uh, which is the you know Nora's room and Hesung's room, and we connected it with the cable, and we put a throttle on it on the cable, and we could control how bad the connection was, and we could even mm. make the video freeze, you know, mm-hmm. and the actors didn't fully know how bad it was going to get and when it was going to freeze, so it was like um, actually speaking to someone over Skype. So we did mm. everything uh, practically, and they were acting with each other live, and I think that really is the what made the difference in that situation. A really great sequence. Well, you mentioned Star Trek and sci-fi, which just reminded me of something. Because <laughs> if I've crunched the numbers correctly, uh, Past Lives is set next year in 2024. Because <laughs> is there a reason for that? Or uh, did you just like the 12 years, 12 year thing? I just like the 12 years, 12 years thing. Because I think that, you know, what I like about 12 years is that, you know, seven years uh, is too short. Mm-hmm. Not Maybe not much it will have changed. And maybe the stakes are too high. But also 20 years is actually too long. And then who cares, right? <laughs> like, right? Mm-hmm. Who cares what happened 20 years ago? So it was one of those things where it's like, it really is like a, um, what is it? The, uh, you know, Goldilocks or something where it's like, it just has to be right. You know, mm-hmm. so that's why I kind of wanted to stick with the 12 years. I realized that the math doesn't work, but I was like hoping that <laughs> the audience would uh, <laughs> go I- with it. I like not it. Do the math. I like that it's it's a kind of it's technically sci-fi maybe, but um, yeah. it's only I, on my second viewing I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So I just wanted to ask you about it, but yeah, it, yeah. it's interesting. Um, and you know, uh, the the film is very unique, but um, you know, there are there are things that you think of when you're watching it. Uh, Brief Encounter is one that's been brought up a few times in different reviews, and uh, Edward Yang's Yi Yi uh, that are both kind of got some kind of thematic overlap are, are they films that did inspire you or were there any other films that, um and i know you come from a playwright background but were there films that you were kind of looking at and and drawing from at all well um i think that i was really honestly pulling from because i feel like the movies that you're talking about i love so much and i think this is the part of the uh chip on your shoulders as a first-time filmmaker that you want to make a movie that is uh its own voice and it has its own uh language that can stand as stand on its own. So I think that I was uh, pretty conscious about um, not looking to any specific film holistically as a uh, way to uh, think mm. about my movie because I wanted it to be told in its own language. But of course, I think that when it came to, um, you know, coming up with shots, we're like, you know, thinking about how to shoot it, I think, how to make the movie. I think, of course, there are so many references that we were pulling from, but it really, ha- it really depended on uh, what the moment uh, what the scene was. So for example, the scene in the bar at the end where we're having a conversation for a long time and then so much drama happens within that uh, conversation. Um, I uh, was thinking about uh, My Dinner with Andre by Louis Mal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, 
uh, and then I, of course, I asked uh, the, everyone who's working on the film to see the film, to watch that movie. So I think that it's like, you know, because that movie is able to do a conversation at a table beautifully well, that's the whole film. So mm-hmm. I think that we ha- we just knew that that was uh, worth looking into. And of course, you know, when you're talking about the breaking of the fourth wall, which is the opening scene, I, uh, where, where uh, the Nora character of Nora turns and looks at the camera. That scene, for example, was one where uh, we, uh, you know, we looked at breaking the waves and then the way that they break the fourth wall and also um, the kind of, uh, you know, the, you know, how the the powerful performance at the heart of it, um, mm-hmm. the by, uh, by, a, by a female character, you know, mm-hmm. so I think that there's those are, those are some of the things that we were sort of like looking to but of course you know i love you you know <laughs> so much you know yeah just the final question um i have to ask you this because I, I i found out that you uh, directed a production of Chekhov's the seagull yeah. <laughs> with sims characters and i have to know more about that what what is that and and how did that come about um i adapted uh, the Chekhov's the seagull um uh, into the sims 4 where it was a durational <laughs> performance where i think over two nights for like you know over three hours each night um i was uh i created all the characters from the seagull and then i had them play out the the acts uh from the seagull um in the seagull and i and it was a performance of uh the seagull but it was you know it, it consisted of uh, me crawling and you know uh pushing around and creating drama for uh you know the sims characters that i had why, why, the, why the sims were you just a sims fan or was there something about the, the... well i think that i i'm certainly the sims fan but i feel like also it's that the sims is itself a very chekhovian video game because it is mm. so much about uh life as it is and it's about you know interpersonal relationships but it's also so much about just the uh the the weight of living you know so i think i always felt that way so i think when i had an opportunity to do something virtually because this was during covid um i thought you know i i want to do a live performance because you know streaming a video game is one of the uh you know prominent live perform live performance uh medium that exists right now you know so i think that i wanted to uh, try streaming something um then i wanted to stream a performance of the sequel on a what i thought was a very chekhovian video game that's so good. I had never seen the link before between Chekhov and The Sims, but now I'm gonna <laughs> think about go away and think about that. Celine Song, thank you so much thank for joining you. us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right, folks, that was Celine Song. Wow, wasn't she amazing? Uh, shall we segue rather neatly into the reviews section of the show then and talk about the Uncle Boon Me prequel that is Past Lives. Who wants to take this one? Who, who wants to take this one? I'll cut that out and make myself oh, look good. Um, Hell's Bells. It is I. Hello. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was me all along. <laughs> um, yeah, this is an absolutely beautiful film. So it is uh, Celine Song's directorial debut, feature, feature directorial debut. She, of course, has a lot of experience as a writer, which is also a role she takes here. And um, yeah, Greta Lee stars as Nora, who is a Canadian-Korean writer living in New York with her husband, who's played by John McGarrow, and um, she, uh, an old friend, um, played by T.O.U., as you say, um, 
basically gets in touch to say, I'm visiting from Korea, I'd love to meet up. Because they were childhood friends. They kind of had a crush on each other, but the way you have a crush on another 11-year-old, you know, you maybe like to just hang out and play together and you might walk home from school together and that's about it, you know. But they had this connection as children and then her family emigrated and he hasn't seen her since. So this is their first meetup in sort of 20 years and and it's just a sort of, it's a sort of will they, won't they? Is she going to leave her perfectly nice uh, American husband for this, you know, connection from her past? Is it going to be just a, a chance to kind of see what another, another timeline might have brought? Um, or is this something more, something different, something fresh, something new? And it's kind of all of the above. It's, it's a really gorgeous film. Um, but it's really hard to explain why and how it's as gorgeous as it is because it is so delicate. I mean, there are shades of things like before sunrise and before sunset. There are, there are shades of those kind of similar just hangout movies, but it's so delicately done. Like there's, there's a moment where they're walking around, just walking along the sort of the riverside in New York and everyone around them is in a happy couple. There are no children, there are no single people, there are no groups of friends. There are only couples as far as the eye can see. And, so it's, and it's just that mood that they're in and it's just a really subtle way of through the background actors conveying something on the screen. I think Song is an, an, an incredible director on the basis of this, this kind of first, first film. So it's, it's kind of got that you know dreamy, walking around a big city with someone feel, but also this, this air of possibility and this air of loss and this air of unrequited something. Uh, between them that I just find incredibly moving. And, and it really all hangs, for me anyway, on the ending. I mean, it's brilliantly performed. I think Greta Lee in particular, this is a massively star-making performance. She is fantastic. But, but really, for me, it came down to the end of this film, which elevated it from a really great film that I had really enjoyed to one of the greatest kind of relationship films I've ever seen. I feel like the, la the last five minutes, might only be five minutes of this film, just hit you like a brick um, in, a, in the best possible way. I think they're extraordinary. I think they make it something more universal and more um, profound, really, than even everything that has come before it, which is already, as I say, really great. It's, it's well written, it's brilliantly performed, it's beautifully directed. I think it's extraordinary. It is genuinely wonderful. The use yeah. of silence as well. Yeah. In this. There is a quote-unquote conversation that is just a minute of two people staring at each other and it's so perfectly pulled off and just the unconventional way that she stages the scenes there's you know conversation in fact it begins with a conversation where you see her talking to her childhood friend with her husband there and another couple sort of speculating on what their relationship is which is essentially the plot of the whole film uh, and it's just really fascinating the dynamic and the fact that her husband's character is properly fleshed out and has a really sensitive part to play in it. And it's not like a jealous sort of like archetype. Like it's really, really emotionally on point. And at the end of it, it's just all the feels, so many oh conflicting emotions. Like it's a genuinely singular cinematic experience. Like, it, I mean, it's, yeah, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Five stars then for past lives. Uh, what's next? What's next? Uh, next, I believe, is one of the most terrifying films of the year. It is not The Nun 2. It is My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. <laughs> Who wants to take this? Oh, God. Um, 
want is such a strong word, yeah. isn't it? No, but to be honest, you know, you know how like there are these films which are kind of like a warm hug of a film. They're not demanding. They're not particularly intellectual or necessarily funny. But they 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 kind of wrap you up in cotton wool and they just make you feel good about yourself, right? This isn't that. So. <laughs> Just to give you some context, so Nia Vardalos did this one-woman show, and I think it was 97, it's like the late 90s, which is what became My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which came out in 2002 and is, to date, the highest-grossing rom-com of all time. I, I can't believe it is still the highest-grossing rom-com of all time. Surely no, something I, no, has most profitable, it. maybe. I think it's the highest-grossing. What about Mamma Mia? No. Is no, Mamma Mia made more money. Is Mamma Mia a rom-com? Well, that's... Well, that's where we're going to spend It has romance. It's it has three musical. dads. It has comedy galore. Yeah. It has all the stuff. Because... I mean, look, the so internet does... wouldn't have lied. When I googled highest-grossing rom-coms, it definitely said this one, so... God said the, the internet wouldn't lie to me. It, it may be... Like, I literally looked up the, f- the yeah. figures this week and... Well, made... how much... Do you know how much Mamma Mia did? Yeah, Mamma Mia was, like, north of 600, and this was yeah. 390. Yeah, 390-something, rather. So, but it yeah. might be most profitable, because it yeah, cost maybe. 50p to make. It was really cheap. I'll be honest, this is not the avenue do you, know what the second, do you know what the second place rom-com is? Well, I, I don't trust your figures, but go and tell me. Yeah. Fair enough. Anyone want to guess? What women want. Literally what women want. Mel Gibson telling us what women want. It's because what second. women want <laughs> is Mel Gibson. Absolutely true. Anyway, we've digressed There, there a was bit. a time. There, there was, was a time. time. Apparently. It was a more innocent time. I'm, more, I'm not so sure. Before the dark times. I'm really not before so sure. Time. Before the empire. Before the drinking. Uh, yeah. Before the dark yes. times. Oh, God. Uh, right. Anyway, so, so the first film, if you will remember, it was funny, it was touching. I think what worked about it was it was very specific, but also very relatable. Like, it's funny. Uh, and because it's semi-autobiographical and it's based on her own family, like, it, 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 there was a, an authenticity that I think, a realness that really came across. And so it's obviously a massive success. In the interim, we've had a sequel. We've had a TV show. Oh, God, don't watch that. Uh, and this is the third one. So this is like my big fat Greek reunion. And Nia Vardalos writing again. This time she's directing as well. And this one, her father has died. And so to fulfill one of his last wishes, which is to give his sort of journal to three of his childhood friends. For no reason. For no reason whatsoever that really makes sense. Uh, they go to Greece and have a kind of family reunion. So I mean, the whole clan together. They go out there. Frankly, it's this weird deserted village. And I will say, there's a point in this where a strange man keeps appearing outside windows in the dark and then peering around corners. I literally walked out of the Nun 2 and into this. And let me tell you, (laughs) that is an entirely different vibe when you come off that film. It's really fucking terrifying. but this is, this is a weird one because it's got to a point now where the, the comedy is so broad that it's almost not even comedy and the characters are very, very kind of thin. And so it gets to a point where the jokes are things like a Greek matriarch going, come, I have baked the goat. And that's the gag. You know? And at one point the guy goes, oh, I'm a vegetarian. She just goes, no! Again, this is the humour. So it's not laugh out loud funny. Um, or, or good. And... and <laughs> Also, there's no real conflict in it or, or really any kind of plot. There's so, barely a fucking wedding! They forget! <laughs> they the have wedding, a wedding. The wedding there is, is wedding. Greek, but it's it is like, neither big nor fat. In fairness, no, there's, le- there's more of a wedding in this than there was in My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2, which I, was I, just a renewal of vows. I skipped My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. I went what? into this how completely gonna, cold. I don't know. How did I lose? The mythology, I, Chris. There's yeah. too much. There's too much, but it felt a little bit like, you know, Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, where he goes, uh, uh, now you do uh, eventually plan to have a, a, a big fat Greek wedding in your uh, 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 big fat Greek wedding movie. Uh, it was a little bit like, 
like that. It yeah. was like it was like four and a half hours in, uh, because this movie takes place on the same planet as they go to first in Interstellar. Uh, so time <laughs> does not work in the same way. It, it says ninety minutes on the IMDb. Yeah. I was in there for four weeks. <laughs> four weeks. Chris yeah. came out of the film and stared at his phone and wept watching ten years of updates <laughs> that he's missed while watching My Big Fat Greek Wedding yeah. 3. Yeah. And I thought My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I saw it in 2002, I saw it in Toronto. I, sorry, I went full Tom Hardy there, I didn't I? I went, I went, I went, I went. Uh, and it was an amiable fun, yeah. and it was, it was very nice. The film is a, is a lovely it's a little good film. It's it fun. is officially the highest grossing romantic comedy of all time. I have just looked it <laughs> up on box office mojo.com. My Big Fat Greek Wedding, way ahead of what women want. Then Hitch is at number three. Yep. Uh, and Pretty Woman. And number four is Pretty Woman. Yep. Number five is There's Something About Mary. And the only film that's even come close recently is Crazy Rich Asians. So they're not counting Mamma Mia. They're not. That, and they shouldn't so because why? it is. Is that US only? Uh, that's US only. Well, there we go. Maybe that's why. If that we need fair. a PowerPoint presentation of why Mamma Mia is definitely a rom-com, yeah. I'm ready. You're the I man mean, to do it. I'm ready. Somebody how, has to. How have we got My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3 before Mamma Mia 3? That is the big travesty. Yes, it is. That's the big travesty. It is a little yes. like that. <laughs> I think some of the plot lines in this film are the big travesty, if I'm honest. But I know spoilers. Well, it feels like an advert for Lund Polly, I think, at times. Well, is that, yeah. That's not really a very topical reference, is it? It's Lund Polly still feels exists? feels like an advert Chewy? for Dictatory, yes. maybe. Chewy. Uh, it's an advert for Jet 2 holidays. I, I will say, the Greek countryside is brilliant. I mean, the work they did on the LED volume was extraordinary. <laughs> it looks magnificent. Um, but to, to be fair, like, I mean, we can rag on this all we like because it's not good. We can? Yeah. Yay! <laughs> Genuinely, I do feel like, it's, like, for a lot of people, that first film is one that they genuinely love. And I think if you do and you have an affection for these characters, there's a nostalgic something about having them all back together. I, I honestly felt watching it like she was nostalgic about her own characters yeah. and, and, and her cast. And it feels like it's very much a let's give all these people something to do kind of a movie. Um, but, but sadly, mm. they don't do anything very good when they got there. But I'm sure they had a nice time in Greece. Have we mentioned that Nia Fardalos directed this yes, as well? Yes, we have. Yes, okay, yeah. good. Um, ineptly, I would say. Um, <laughs> there is... Wow. <laughs> I mean, look, look, in terms of directorial Fuck. debuts, like Celine Song up yeah, here, Neil Rodalos, yeah. somewhere down there. Somewhere down like, there. You know, it's not, com- com- it's not close competition. John Corbett, who plays her husband in this, is so bad in this, I can only presume he was striking already. <laughs> it's an exception. I honestly, this movie caused me physical pain. But he doesn't have anything I, I, to do. I hated flames on the side of my face. I thought it was absolutely abhorrent, and I loathe it, and I wish everyone involved great misery. Look, Chris, it's okay. He already had to go back and do and just like that. So he's <laughs> suffered enough, man. He's suffered enough. <laughs> Four like stars, that. then, from uh, Empire Magazine. Excuse me. No, no. I reviewed it, thank you very much, and I give it two. What you're saying is it could have been fetter. Wow. <laughs> That even hurt me. I started podcasting at 11.30 this morning. Give me a fucking break. Just someone draw a chalk outline around me or or use a complicated series of pulleys and levers to make it look like I'm alive. That is, although I have to say, legitimately a better joke than anything on my Big Frack Week 23. Hooray! 
All right, let's talk about the nun too. Go on, Ben. Nun too. The nun too. Yes, or Valak in the habits, yes. as you could call it if you wanted to. <laughs> Uh, this <laughs> solid joke <laughs> this yes is the return of the nun the return of the conjuring it's a fresh nunjuring the last one was like five years ago this is a good solid middle of the table conjuring movie so uh, I'm sure you will love and remember the characters from the nun uh, like Tessa Farmiga's sister Irene she is back 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 and she's in Italy four years after, you know, all that nun business. Uh, it's none of yours. And uh, <laughs> I'm absolutely winging it here. Um, <laughs> Sister Irene is back. So and Sister Irene, I hear you had some nun business. <laughs> also oh, back. Oh, sorry, Italy. <laughs> Please misheard. Also back is Valak, the nun-shaped demon, uh, played by Bonnie Ahrens, who I think is currently haunting Warner Brothers execs for not getting enough uh, royalties for being effectively the face of this character, which effectively, that is all there is to the nun. So, yeah, it's set four years after the first film, a bunch of priests and clergy people keep dying in churches across Europe, uh, there is a, a, a priest that spontaneously combusts, which I think is more exciting than anything that happens in my Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. <laughs> you don't like that? Take it up on my boss. The Pope. <laughs> this is a real, like, honestly, double bill The Nun 2 with the Pope's Exorcist, and you will have a good, stupid-ass time, because this is directed by Michael Chavez, who is a bit of a conjuring veteran. He did The Curse of La Llorona, which is conjuring adjacent. It was was fine. It's better than The Nun. Uh, But he did The Conjuring 3, which was actually pretty good. Stepping in for James Wan is a big deal, and he absolutely handled himself well on that film. It's very solidly directed, and the scares are pretty well handled, and it's scripted primarily by Akila Cooper, who, if you have been following horror stuff in recent years uh, she wrote Malignant with James Wan which is just the most brilliantly batshit horror of recent years Um, and she wrote Megan as well so she's got she's got a real like propensity for coming up with like weird crazy ideas and then kind of front loading them with a lot of character stuff like you have to this makes this sounds harsh. You have to sit through quite a lot of malignant before it goes completely bonkers. Same with Megan. Megan spends a lot of time doing character stuff before Megan starts like dancing and like people. killing, killing people, people. Yeah. with big sticks and all that kind of thing and ch- running around like a dog through the forest. You you sit through a lot of character stuff and it's the same thing here. If anything, this is like a little bit too well behaved, I think, for quite a bit of its runtime because you're spending a lot of time with Sister Irene and also with uh, Storm Reed's incoming character, Sister Deborah, who isn't really a strong believer, but she's in the convent for for particular reasons that you find out. She's she's quite edgy. She's unconventional. Carry on. Uh, uh, We also have a returning character from the first film, which, trust me, nobody remembers. Maurice. Uh, Maurice! Who can forget Maurice? Um, You know, Frenchie. Frenchie, Maurice. And he is back in, like, uh, hunky handyman form. He's at a French... boarding school where half of the people there are Irish 
And no, sometimes people talk to each other in a French accent in English. Sometimes they talk to each other in actual French. I don't know where any of this is set. <laughs> what is happening? It's really confusing that way, yeah, actually. And it, is. And it did, did upset me a bit. Also, what upset me is Anna Popplewell, oh who was Susan in the Chronicles of Narnia films, is now playing a mother. Susan Bevensey. Like not, not, just... not, not a mother superior, like an actual mother of a child. A mother of a child who was like 10, 12 yeah. years old at least in this movie? I, 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 am, I am old. It's very uncomfortable. So we spend a lot of time with Maurice, who is like befriending Anna Popplewell's character, Kate, who's a school teacher, and her daughter is one of the kids at the school. And there's some really sweet sort of stuff with all those characters, spending a lot of time with them. He is also, I hate to tell you, possessed by the demon Valak. Spoiler. Spoiler. Who is? <laughs> Who is? <laughs> you, that's the end of Frenchie. the nun Fr- one. That's what yeah. I was going to say. That's Frenchie the very end of the nun that, one. To be fair, that Frenchie was true. possessed yeah. by Valak. He, in fact, he did, in fact, movie. get Frenchied by Valak. He, yes, possessed. he did. Yes, and um, and so I was surprised to see he was back because I thought that then led on into the Annabelle movies. Anyway, the, the, if, again, but, if you want a conjuring timeline PowerPoint, I don't know. Yeah. I could. But do crucially, that. this starts with that the, they're following Valak's sort of like move from Romania across Europe. So Valak is literally a nun on the run, <laughs> and that's amazing. Spectacles, testicles, wallet, wallet and watch. watch. There we go. <laughs> and now we know what you liked it, Jimbo. That is. It's now my favourite film. There you go. So, uh, so good? Yeah, none good? Generally good. It go, Yeah, it goes bonkers at the end in a way that I was like literally cackling in my seat when it gets to the finale. I don't want to say what's great about it because the, the trailers have admirably held back on yeah. some of the weirdest stuff. But yeah, it eventually gets really fun. The issue is that the nun, when the nun popped up in The Conjuring 2, it was like, ooh, there's a scary nun. Yeah. But beyond like, ooh, there's a scary nun, there's not actually much that the nun can do. So there's a lot of like, ooh, there's a scary nun, but I don't feel any danger of what like the nun is gonna do because kind of all she does is pop up like a scary nun. (laughs) But with that in mind, what is actually really good about this film is that there are loads of images where they're like, is that a nun? That's a nun. Wait, that's not a nun. It's a nun. Yeah. No, it's she not. basically she growing keeps, up in Ireland. Yeah, she keeps. <laughs> hey, is that a nun? Excuse me, you're not the one who went. To, you're not the one who went to convent school. <laughs> Wait a second. No, that's a penguin. What's that's weird? What's weird is like she does that Michael Myers trick of just fading up from the darkness, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so like you'll just be like, oh my god, it's a wimple. Shit, you know. Yeah. Um, I was scared, but I am a wuss, so um, that obviously take that take into account. Back, yeah. No, our nuns weren't that scary. Real one of them was. <laughs> was she called Valak? She was. Oh my God! Do you know her? Okay, Sister Valak. Yeah, lovely woman. Um, no, but it, I, I was. I was scared. I did have a. I did trip over a couple of things. It threatens to go a bit jeepers creepers at one point. Um, which Nothing I was, wrong with that. I mean, maybe not. Um, but also, I tell you what, the main thing that cri- that tripped me up was at one point they go to Avignon to c- to consult something they call the Catholic archives. <laughs> and I don't know why, but I was just like. That's not a real name. And doesn't it come up like the uh, archive de pap? Yeah, yeah, yes. no, 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 it's not. They, they literally call it the Catholic archives. Every time yeah. we talk about it, it's just at the Palais de Pap, which is a real building oh, okay. in Avignon, sure. which is, the, of course, the Pope's palace, as you all know, in Avignon. From when the Popes were expelled from Rome and they had to move to Avignon. And then you've got anti-Popes and it got very complicated for a while. But the point is, Catholics wouldn't call it the Catholic archive. It'd just, just be the archive. It would just be the church archive. And so I don't know why that tripped me up so much, but they kept saying it and I kept like sitting there going no I don't think so so anyway I, I th- this may just be me but you enjoyed it 
nonetheless. Nonetheless, James. Don't, Don't applaud that. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, yes, We were doing yes. so well. No, but it, it, is, it, is, it is nice to see a film where sisters are doing it for themselves. That's all. Hey! <laughs> all right, you can applaud that. In, in the canon of nun films, The Nun 2 is second to none. That <laughs> <laughs> oh. How much more nun can this nun film be? Oh. None. 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 None more nun. None. There you How go. much wood would a nun chuck? How much wood would a nun chuck? How much nun oh. would a nun chuck? Like, it's, this, it's not a spoiler to say what doesn't happen in a film. At no point does the nun have nunchucks, but if they do the nun three, there should yes. be. Give her nunchucks, please. Yeah. Can she meet Chuck Norris? <laughs> <laughs> that would be very, very good. Look, we have to take some questions now. So let's bring this, again, this feels like my big fat Greek wedding three. It feels like a, we've been in the Nun 2 review now for the last four and a half weeks. But it was three uh, stars. Three stars. Three stars then for the Nun 2. Um, time for a live guest. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which is out on DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K on Monday, which is September 11th, folks, is not just a sequel to 2018's groundbreaking Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It is also one of the year's biggest and best films in its own right, expanding on the world of the original movie effortlessly, it says here. Uh, no, it does, it's an amazing film. It does. But it yeah. doesn't just do that in the animated realm, it does that in the soundtrack realm as well, with one of the most daring and unconventional but downright brilliant original scores in many a year, courtesy of one of the best composers in the business, a man who's consistently inventive. I think he wrote this. I, I think you, um, really? I think he wrote this, well. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Memo to self, like do not get guests to write their own intros. <laughs> a man who's consistently inventive and varied work can be heard on the likes of The Man from UNCLE, Steve Jobs, the four-star masterpiece that is Molly's Game. <laughs> Ocean's 8, Enola Holmes, A Trial of the Chicago 7, and both Spider-Verse movies. He is a man who frankly can make a goose sing. Will you please welcome the magnificent Daniel Pemberton! <laughs> Daniel Pemberton, everybody! I think someone's booing at the back. Huh? I think someone's actually booing. <laughs> is someone, is, who's booing Daniel Pemberton? Can, can we clear this up? No actual geese were harmed in the making of? Or is no, that no, not no something geeses. you can say? Maybe, maybe, they, maybe there's a rumour there were, and it's someone from some animal liberation. Uh, of no, <laughs> no animals to be used in film scores. Can you explain, can you explain the goose? The oh yeah, goose sorry, that probably makes absolutely no sense. Uh, yeah. We don't have a goose backstage that we're just playing with. In uh, Spider-Verse, the new one, there's a scene where we first meet Miles, uh, which is the first time we kind of have Gwen's story, then we have Miles' story. And I wanted to really make it this sort of uh, scratch showcase. The first film we did a lot of record scratching in. But only at the end of the film, I kind of worked out what I was doing, which normally happens a lot. And then my films don't normally have sequels. So I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> this one did, yay. Uh, so um, I was like, I want to do this really big scratch sequence and we scratched in everything you see on the screen, like the punches, the felt tip pens, the car crash noises, the ding, ding, ding from Jeopardy. And um, 
And then at the end, I was like, oh, there's, a good, like, there's a whole bit where they're fighting with a goose. Why have we not scratched a goose sampling? <laughs> so we got a goose. We got a goose in, in the studio. We literally made it up on the spot. And like, can we get a goose sound? We got a goose sound from the sound team. And then the DJ Blakey, who's the amazing scratcher, just freestyle scratched all this goose, goose solo on it. And that's in the film. And again, one of my proudest moments, the first Marvel superhero movie to feature a record scratch goose solo. <laughs> there is someone called Guinness, because I feel like that should be in there somewhere. But I, I love how you, like, weirdly inv- inventive you are with your, with your instruments, because I went on the recording stage with uh, King Arthur when you were doing that, and you were literally doing things with ancient instruments to try and get a sort of vaguely period-appropriate kind of sound, but also literally bundles of chopsticks that you got with your takeout when you stayed late in the studio. So like, is it that same kind of improvisational approach to something like Spider-Man, or is it just too big even for that? Now, every project I try and put things in that I feel uh, something you haven't heard before in a film. And so there's, you know, I sort of shy away sometimes from writing a very classic symphonic score because I kind of feel there's loads of composers who've done that way better than I could do. And so the best way for me to do something new is shake some chopsticks on top of, a, on top of something because John Williams might have written some, some amazing you know, 90-piece orchestra you know, cue, but he hasn't probably written one where there's some chopsticks being shaken. <laughs> so I've, Yeah, I've always thought that was lacking in I'm like, filmography, really. I've probably written the best film cue with some chopsticks being shaken in it <laughs> so far, like one of one, also the worst one. <laughs> but I actually find if you... like. Like something like King Arthur, there was a real visceralness to the film, and I really wanted to capture the kind of grit and the dirt of it. And I found that using more unconventional sounds, things where you could really like feel the sort of tactileness of them. Like another one we did on that, which was amazing, was we were in Abbey Road, and we had this medieval guitar player tuning up his guitar, and he's moving these. just getting it tuned. I'm like, Whoa. I'm like, what's that? He's like, what do you mean, what's that? It's like, yeah. I'm like, that sound. He's like, oh, I'm tuning up my. It's like those tuning pegs. That's it. And so we spent like 20 minutes just going <laughs> on his tuning pegs at a huge cost. Um, <laughs> but it sounded great. And it's one of those things. It's sometimes it's being able to work on like kind of big movies, but still approach them sort of from a kind of naive amateur kind of way where you're just excited about stuff and it's that sort of stuff I feel that really makes a difference and makes something feel different it strikes me as well that uh, you as you say there you, you kind of shy away from that orchestral classic approach to scores I mean you you, you can do it but you, you shy away from it a little bit and it, do, you, do you often take a kind of almost an approach like you're writing for a band, that you're writing for a rock band. I noticed that about a lot of your scores, that there's, you know, you're not afraid of a guitar, you're not afraid of, 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 a, of a drum kit, which a lot of composers are. Yeah, I think, I mean, every time I do a new film, I try and make it sound like it's its own world, and I try and approach every film very differently. And so I sort of liken it to starting a new band every three months or something, and I try and work out a lineup, so to speak, a kind of sound world, and... Um, I think, like, I don't, I, to be honest, I love writing symphonic stuff. I did, like, Being the Ricardos, the Aaron Sorkin movie, and that was a film where the film needed that kind of feel. And I always try and go with what the film needs. Um, 
you know, every film has a different language. But for me, it's always about how do you make something feel new and different? And a thing I talk about a lot with cinema is I think the best moments you'll have in the cinema is when you experience something for the first time and it feels new and it feels fresh because that's when those things stick with you. And a lot of cinema has become about reheating experiences you've had before, things you've seen before, things you've heard before. And it is comforting, but it doesn't give you the kind of impact of the very first time you see or experience something that's new. So the more I can do things that feel new and different, the kind of the bigger the impact is, hopefully, on the audience. So that must then have created more challenges going into Across the Spider-Verse. Like, doing a sequel kind of then is presents almost more challenges for you than it would for most people with that attitude. Yes, it's a nightmare. <laughs> it's like, it's really, sometimes I'm like, why don't I just write all my scores to sound the same? It'd make my life so much easier. But I was, I was really conscious with Spider-Verse, uh, across the Spider-Verse. I think with the first film, um, we kind of sort of snuck under the radar a bit. I remember working on it just thinking, this is one of the most amazing films like being really conscious of working on this film that I thought was amazing. And I expected it to come out and everyone would be like, oh, that was the best film ever. And I, I normally go and see films the first week. I like going to cinema and just pay it. That's my favorite thing is buy a ticket, watch it with an audience. Friday night, this is going to be rammed. I was like, half the cinema is my mates. They've come to see it. <laughs> and, you know, that was interesting because I kind of thought the first Spidey came out, people didn't care that much in the UK. And then it built and built and built. And the second one, it was great. And I really felt that with the second one, you don't get those opportunities to be that push the boundaries, you know, in film as often as I'd hope. And when you do get those opportunities, you've got like 100% run with them. So doing the second one was insanely intense just because I knew this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to really like, just push the boundaries of what you could do with a film score because the, the, the whole film is pushing those boundaries as well. So how long were you on it for? Because I feel like this is a much longer process than normal. I kind of feel I was on it pretty much as soon as the first the one first finished. One out, yeah. So like, you know, that's like five years, but I would say I was probably on it for like two or three years in a kind of low level and then like a year, nine months really intensely. But what I do often is like come up with ideas in the background, you know, like just sort of ponder a bit. And, and weirdly, one of the things that became one of the biggest things in the film, um, which is the opening and the ending, mm -hmm. that was actually one of the first cues I wrote when we first talked about Spider-Punk. I just bashed out this idea uh, of trying to do the Spider-Man sort of thing, like a punky version. And it's really rough track and we binned it. Like, I always write a lot of stuff we bin and forget. And then when we were working on the movie, we were trying to work out how do we end it. And the music editor, Katie Greathouse, was like, oh, what about that track? And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. We put it on, and it was like, oh, fuck, man. This really, this is great. I was like, oh, please don't let anyone say we don't like this. I was really, because <laughs> you can put these things on, you're like, this is it. And then someone else goes, nah, I don't like it. Oh. And that so happens the, more than you'd expect. So that's the moment when the guitar crashes in to that, that song at the end. Because that, that, that last track in particular has been on a loop in my head ever since. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, so it was, yeah, it was that kind of moment. And then we, you know, that, that was the starting point. And then obviously it completely rewrote that track to fit what's happening 
in the picture. But um, yeah, that track was unbelievably complicated and insane to do. Because it was finished fairly late in the day. I mean, I've spoken to the three directors of the movie and they say that basically that was the last thing that they, that they did for the movie. That they, has anyone seen Across, <laughs> Across the Spider-Verse, by the way? I don't want to spoil it too much, but a certain character shows up at the end of that movie now who initially wasn't meant to show up and you have to react accordingly, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's weird because when I was working on that movie, at the very end, I was pretty much living in the Sony animation office and you kind of imagine that when you work on Hollywood films, you're going to be these really big, glamorous kind of, I don't know, big hotel rooms, big sets, you know, just, I was locked in an office pretty much for like, um, like months, just like running between the edit. It was like, a, it was a really intense, but exciting experience. And, you know, just keep rewriting things because, you know, the picture kept changing, the ideas kept changing. And, but when I nailed that, Every now and again, when you write something, my favorite moment is when you've written it and you're like, you get goosebumps or you make yourself cry, which is quite good. And you're like, <laughs> yes. And then becomes the next hard bit where you've got to convince everyone else that, that it's good. And, but with that one, they, they, they really bought into it, but I was really scared for a while. I was like, I don't care about anything else in the film. Just please, no one mess with this scene. It's amazing. Can you talk about forging relationships with directors over the years? I mean, you've worked with a number of directors more than once. You know, Aaron Sorkin, you mentioned, you know, Danny Boyle, of course. Nick Murphy, who you kind yeah. of... Yeah, Nick, know. love Nick. Nick Murphy, yeah. he gave me my first big break. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't know. Every, the thing that's interesting about directors, I've worked with so many different directors now. And, like, it's quite... Even I'm like, oh, I've written some... You know, I just did a film with Michael Mann. I'm like, that's crazy. Um, and... Um, and it's, everyone has a different approach to making a movie. And I quite like that. Um, it, it can be very testing sometimes because you've got to spend a long time working out, you know, the way Danny Boyle approaches a movie is very, very different to how Guy Ritchie approaches a movie or um, Aaron Sorkin. They all have different ways of working. And it's, it's interesting to like learn their approaches and then try and work what can be the best way to work with them. You said that Aaron Sorkin had really, really specific ideas about Chicago 7, for example. Did that carry over into the Ricardos then when you worked with him again? Uh, no, with, I mean, with, 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 with Chicago 7, Aaron, right from the beginning, was like four pieces of music. I've already got them all worked out. It's going to be beginning, two riots, and the end. And, and like, to have a director who understands the power of music that strongly is really exciting. And he's like, these have got to work. Don't need stuff anywhere else. And we ended up putting a bit more score in there because it just felt like it made the movie kind of uh, like a better experience. Um, but then with Ricardo's, um, it's a different kind of movie. And we, we were both like, okay, what do we do on this one? And I kind of felt we wanted a really classic orchestral score. And I always joke with Aaron, because when I did Molly's Game, he was like, I'm, I'm hearing an orchestral score. And I'm like, I'm not. <laughs> I'm like, I want to do a contemporary kind of electronic score. <laughs> and, and you can see him going, uh, who's this guy telling me I'm not... But I was like, look, if, I don't like, if you don't like it, we can bin it and we'll do it. And, and, and you kind of gain trust with directors by, you know, you challenge them, they challenge you, and then you start to realise, you know, okay, we've all got the best interest in heart, which is the movie. And with, with Ricardo's, I, I kind of want to write something that's a bit more classic of the period, because that felt was that felt like the best way to make that movie work. 
And you've just done, I think, Ferrari. So I heard you did it in a week. Is that an exaggeration or is that literally a week? Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, Ferrari was a very intense, uh, the best way, I, I've, I've been told the best way to say it was a very intense experience, Ferrari. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I just came back from Venice. You know, Michael is like an amazing, Michael Mann, amazing filmmaker who's really responsible, I think, for some of the most um, iconic moments in, in film on a visual and sonic level. And, you know, he's very particular about sound. And so I kind of worked on that knowing that he likes to really tinker, you know, under the bonnet, so to speak, of, of the score. Um, but, you know, just played in Venice and it's a really, like, it's a really exciting experience, exciting film. And I think it's going to surprise people because I think it's, it, it's got a dramatic emotional level to it, as well as this kind of insane racing sequences. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I'm gonna hope people go and check it out. Any geese? Uh, uh, no, no, no geese on this one. I mean, one of the things with that was there's really loud Ferrari engines, and I was like, okay, they're here in the middle of the sonic bandwidth. So my clever trick was basically like, don't get in the way of the engines because Michael will want the engines really loud. So I just wrote strings up here and low things. Very technical, <laughs> but yeah. Like the kind of like the sandwich for the Ferrari meat. Have you ever, uh, this may be a strange question on which to finish, but have you ever had writer's block? Have you ever sat down with a director to maybe, you know, spot a movie and gone, I got nothing? <laughs> yeah, I've not had it at that level. I think the thing is you can always do something, but it's like, is it any good? And I've definitely done things where I'm like, yeah, this is a bit shit. <laughs> And then you, you throw it out. But sometimes I find just you make it and then you analyze why is it crap. I always find I can write. Like I just have to keep writing even if it's nonsense. It's a good way to just work out. Like working out why something doesn't work can be as successful as working out why it does work. I can see why you mesh so well creatively with Lord and Miller who you obviously produced and, and wrote the Spider, the Spider-Verse movies. It seems very much like their approach as well. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, they definitely like trying things out a lot, shall we say. <laughs> but I mean, I love those guys. I just did After Party with them as well. And, um, you know, they're really, really great characters. Do you want to ask the Beyond the Spider-Verse question or should we, uh, should well, we skip I mean, it? I mean, are you, is there anything you can tell? Have you started thinking about Beyond the Spider-Verse? Beyond the Spider-Verse, no one who works on Spider-Verse wants to think anything to do with Spider-Verse <laughs> at the moment because everyone is, it was, I'd say the experience of making across was like so intense because everyone was pushing it as far as they could go and you can just see it you know watch that movie you can see the amount of love and passion and insane hard work that went into it and I think the equivalent is like is if you've run like 50 marathons in a row and then you get to the end and you're like I've done it and then someone goes to you so when are you running your next 50 marathons <laughs> Helen, you actually know that feeling, don't you? Yeah. I just did 10 halves in 10 days. It's fine. It's not the same. All right. Well, well there's a little bit of time before your next 50 marathons comes up, I'm, I'm guessing, in that one. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Please give it up. Daniel Pemberton, everybody. Thanks. Daniel Pemberton!
Time for you to ask us some stuff. If you have any questions, have been running around those brains of yours. There's a hand right over there. There's another. There's a hand. There are hands attached to all kinds of people. There are some creepy nuns going around. <laughs> uh, they've got microphones. Uh, yes, please, right here in the front row. Oh, no, second row. Fuck it. Okay, you, 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 yeah, you go for it. Go for it. Earlier today, I did Mad Max's We Don't Need Another Hero for karaoke. What is the best film song for karaoke? I've got the answer. <laughs> oh, okay. I did karaoke last weekend, and I can confirm on the Lucky Voice system, they have now added, I'm just Ken. Oh. Have they? And let's go! Let's do it! <laughs> Follow me! <laughs> Myself and my Disney University co-host, Sam Summers, who is in the audience, and our friend Tom Nicholson, together did I'm Just Ken. And it's like did the full thing with all the movements. Did they put their manly hand in yours? We, we literally put our oh. manly hands in each other's manly hands. Were you Kenuff? We, we were more than Kenuff. <laughs> it, was, it was a special moment. Wow. That's a good That's song. That, and, and it's genuinely like the movements that that song goes through, like the ballad bit and then the like almost prog rock bit and <laughs> then the dance breakdown. It's all in the karaoke version. It is astonishing. Lads, get yourself to Lucky Voice. Yeah. That's a very good call. That's a very good call. We, do you know what? So we used to do a lot of Empire karaoke. We've not done one in a long time. Well, long we have. Time. And you've never had the chance to hear James's Golden Eye. Which is the correct answer to this question, incidentally. It's a, bum, it's a, bum, bum, bum. It's a hell of a thing. Very good thing you haven't heard James's Golden Eye. Uh, but we did. We, we, uh, we actually went to Lucky Voice. Uh, we're not sponsored by Lucky Voice. We just like going there. Uh, we went to Lucky Voice one time and we did uh, our kind of our, our very own Bondathon. Yes, Bondioki. Uh, and we did, we did Bondioki. They didn't have the really bad one from the 70s. Oh, um, All Time High. There we go. And they didn't, didn't have that? They didn't have the Jack White and Alicia Keys one. As well. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is strange, because obviously Barry could do it. So. <laughs> he came up with, like, the absolute bangingest riff and got Alicia Keys in the studio with him and then just went, whoa, whoa, whoa. what was yes, he doing? Like Tom Hardy just walking <laughs> past the studio. <laughs> I see an opportunity to make a silly noise. I am there. Um, that's got the same chord structure as the previous Bond theme song, which is You Know My Name by Chris Cornell, which is, in my opinion, a the, banger, the, the greatest one. one. Mm, uh, tied with uh, Carly Simon's um, Nobody Does It Better mm. from The Spy Who Loves Me, yeah. um, which is a cracker. Uh, but yes, Jimbo does Goldeneye, uh, once, once seen, never unheard. Oh, it's once equal parts terrifying and terrifying, I think, really. Yeah. It's um, just upsetting. Deeply arousing also. Yeah, also it's that. It's very sexual. Um. <laughs> you, go, you go quite high. He I really do, I do. Really. It gets perilous at one point. But he, he has to really grab the testicles. Really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it gets really quite... Uh, it gets quite I genu- so I genuinely did that at a wedding once in front of a packed room. I did go... I'm never doing that. Did they want you to? <laughs> no. This is, and this is genuinely true. This is genuinely true. When I picked up the microphone, I went full, like, almost famous, where there was live current running through the microphone. So I was like... It was genuinely got electrocuted. Was it during the moment when the, the figure goes, does anyone here have any reason why these two should get married? And then all you heard was... Dum, 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 dum. dum. <laughs> See them suffers on the water. <laughs> and he gets sliding in. That's it. 
Yeah. GoldenEye! It's, it's, That's it's very terrifying. close to it, actually. It is terrifying. When James Dunn's GoldenEye, yeah. it's, it's, it's like he's possessed by Falak. Yes. <laughs> if you had have got electrocuted by that microphone, mm. that is the exact plot of an episode of Poker Face. <laughs> you could have been Spoiler. investigated. Your, the, your death could have been investigated by Natasha Leon. That's true. James could have been dead for years. We could have been manipulated him. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> It would explain a right lot. Here. <laughs> Helen, uh, what's, uh, what's, what's, uh, what song do you do? I, I, um, I was trying to think. I mostly do, I'll be honest, like Little Shop of Horrors. We were talking about it before. But uh, Suddenly Seymour, I'm a very big fan of. Um, yes, you are. You know, and he's like, yes, you are. You do it every fucking time, Helen. <laughs> Jesus. I can't, I can't, I can't say, I can't judge. Yeah, because you do certain ones all the time. I do certain ones all the time. Um, so what, you give the people what they want. Well, this is it. And, like, who doesn't love Little Shop of Horrors? Don't put who your hand up. Who doesn't love there it? There we go, you see? Don't, why would you not? Anyway, uh, Suddenly Seymour is a banger of a song. It's a great song. And it's also kind of a secret. You, you sell it to someone going, oh, we'll do a duet. And then they start singing and they think, oh, it's my song. And it's not their song. They get to do, like, the first half of the first verse. And then they are out of there. And yeah. it's all you doing the rest. Um, uh, I, uh, it's not from a film, but I like to do... Don't let the sun go down on me by Elton John. Uh, but we do the George Michael Elton John version and I do the Elton John bit and I go outside the room and I wait. He waits. He waits to be introduced. You think he's joking. You yeah, think he's he joking. isn't joking. He is not joking. And so not whoever he... is in the room yeah. has to stand Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Chris Hewitt. Ladies and gentlemen. No, 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 it's not Mr. Chris Hewitt. It's ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Elton John. And you burst up those, I can't ride. You just go straight into it. Not only does this happen, but like Chris doesn't just wait outside the room. On the doors of, the, of Lucky Voice, there is, it's like a submarine. There's like a little round window. And what Chris does is he stands with his face right up to the little round window and watches you while you sing the other bit, waiting for his... Like Falak. And, 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 and quite often he will stick his head in going, is it me yet? Is it me now? Stop singing! Also Stop like Falak. Also like Falak. Indeed. All right. Yeah. So those are those are the ones. But a general piece of karaoke advice: share, very small range, bangers of songs. Oh, I thought you meant share the microphone. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> like... Share with a C H E R. Um, she is very singable. I'm just saying. I will say the Shoop Shoop song. Brackets. It's in his, it's in kiss. his kiss. Close brackets. From mermaids. From mermaids. Good song. Great song. Good song. Great movie. Great Good movie. Mo- Good movie. I no, like it a lot. movie. Well, I like it. Movie. A lot. Come on. Mm, not sure You've about got that. Bob Hoskins going, so call me Al, and Cher going, so Al, call me. Oh, oh. 10 out of 10, no notes. You can call me Al. We've never done You Can Call Me Al at karaoke. Also, there are nuns in it. There are nuns. Oh, Winona Ryder oh, wants to be a God. nun in Mermaids. I'm just saying, all comes back together. Helen, choose a hand. Choose a hand. Um, uh, well, you had your hand up in the front row here in the white shirt to begin yes, with. You, the the, the so, microphone yes, was cruelly should. deprived you, Sorry. sir. Yeah. And I can only apologize. And then, uh, James, you look for hands over here. All right, Helen, James, and Ben, if you had to babysit Chris's daughter, which you certificate film would you show? Oh. And Aliens. <laughs> you certificate. And it's film, not The Expanse, so that's not allowed either. Um, and Chris, based only on their choices rather than any discernible childcare skills, who would you choose as a babysitter? That's a, that's a, that's a tough question. That's a tough question. Wow. Okay. 
I'm trying to think what I know she's already seen. But no, my go-to, actually, for, for kids of that age is quite often something like My Neighbor Totoro because they haven't all seen it. Some have, obviously, with cool parents. I'm sure many of you are here. Um, but uh, but it's, it's beautiful and weird and different and, they, you know, gorgeous. So, and I like watching it so I don't have to sit there and roll my eyes uh, like I do at some of those films. Oh, my God. Why are my niece and nephew obsessed with all of the Minion films? Can yeah. they not just pick one that's good and stop hey, watching whoa, the rest? Whoa, those Minion films are good. The first one especially is a crazy joke fest that I, I kind of love. But yeah, last night, a little drinking game. It's like, oh, it's Friday Night Film Club. Let's watch a film. And she went, Secret Life of Pets. Again. <laughs> and I, I think I know that film more intimately than I know myself now. Uh, but it's really good. It's really good. And um, Kevin Hart's fantastic in it. And uh, Albert Brooks as the, the kind of eagerly hawk type thing. There's a really, really funny bit with him. Mm, okay. Well done. Yes. Who's next? I'll go. Uh, we're putting on The Little Mermaid. Oh. The original. We'll mm. watch the original. Uh, and then at the end, I'm like, do you know what a podcast is? <laughs> Would you like to hear two 30-something men discuss this film for over two hours? You have for that no choice alone, in the Ben's disqualified. <laughs> um, she does know what a podcast is because she recorded a sting for this podcast within about three days of arriving with us. But yeah, there you go. Jimbo. Yes. So the thing is, like, you could get away with Coraline, right? Because technically it's child friendly, but it's fucking terrifying. And we'll tr- so I just go straight in with Predator because. <laughs> Genuinely, it's less upsetting than Coraline, so I feel that it would be a kindness. How is that the standard? <laughs> it's, a, it's a progression, Helen. It's a small step. Mm-hmm. At some point, everybody needs to learn that if it bleeds, you can get it. Right? A hundred percent. And that would be a great song to do at karaoke if they could only do a karaoke version. Yeah, yeah. It's a life lesson. I think you have to learn yeah. it. <laughs> now choose Chris choose one of them yeah. pick one of us just pick James it's gotta fine. catch them all uh, 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 who am I going to choose um, my neighbour Totoro would bore her shitless um, <laughs> no that's you Chris not her no trust me it would bore her shitless uh, Little Mermaid she's seen she didn't like the live action version but she's not seen the animated version she has seen the animated God version um, she's seen she doesn't remember seeing it uh, Predator isn't on the agenda <laughs> just yet, but I like your thinking. <laughs> the demon that makes trophies of men. feel like I'm about to see a very dramatic handshake in the middle of the stage yeah. right now. That's how she greets you when you come home. Daddy! You son <laughs> of a bitch! You son of a bitch! <laughs> What's the matter? Empire got you pushing too, too many, many pencils! <laughs> I think we have a winner. I think we do have a winner. <laughs> I'm going to get home very late. Wake up. Sweetie, come on. She's hiding. He couldn't see me. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for Predator. <laughs> uh, we have seven and a half minutes left, according to the angry flashing cock. <laughs> James, pick a hand. Oh, God. A hand, a hand. You, sir. Hello. After Barbie, what are your predictions for the next billion dollar film? Mm-hmm. Dune! Yes! Dune! That is the only answer. Um, Search your feelings. You know it's not going to get <laughs> any work. Christopher? We can be optimists. Yeah, um, what else is there? There's a- Aquaman? 
look, the first one broke a billion. I mean, it's not going to happen. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm just. It's saying like when they it. said they said, "Oh no, June's going bad," but don't worry, Aquaman's not, and everyone's like, "Meh." Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's really tough to know, especially because of the strike, because I think the thing, there's so many factors that made Barbie such an insane success, but the, the campaign that they pulled off before the strike hit, not just all of the like, incredible marketing in terms of the, the teasers and the trailers and the posters and the, the hype that they managed to create, they did like a full-on world tour with the actors, with Greta Gerwig with all the people who are gonna like create this absolute phenomenon around this movie and I think it's so hard to predict what that is gonna be until the strike is over because I think if that showed anything yes there are incredible vast amounts of reasons why Barbie has done as well as it's done mainly because it is absolutely incredible but they completely nailed the press tour and like brought everybody into the world of that movie primarily through the power of Ryan Gosling. I'm, I'm really impressed, by the way, that you didn't say my big fat Greek wedding three, James, in answer to this question. So thank you for it's that. It's not going to happen. Um, I mean, it's apparently the highest grossing rom com. I mean, of yeah, all time, it is. As long as you don't true. count any of the others. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, mm, I don't know. I mean, like the Marvels, Captain Marvel mm, crossed a billion, but it seems unlikely. It feels unlikely right now. Aquaman feels unlikely. Willy Wonka feels unlikely. I, I don't know. I'm looking no, it's, it's at the... Because nobody knows anything, right? I mean, there's only been $2 billion films this year. I think that we're now moving into a new norm for cinema where billion-dollar films are actually going to be few, few and far between and they're going to be significantly reduced. Um, oh. Something like uh, Dead Reckoning Part 1 can be seen as a, a mild financial disappointment, and then I, all bets are off. I don't see, I don't know which way is up anymore. Uh, that film's incredible. Um, and not just because I spent 15 years <laughs> embedded in the walls of Chris McQuarrie's editing suite. Um, so I don't know, I don't know anymore. Uh, I do think we're not going to get one until next year. And Although, I think that one Taylor is like, Swift's Eras Tour <laughs> could push it over the top. It, 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 it could. It, could. It, it won't, but it could. You don't uh, know. The film, I think, is, cl- is possibly going to do it next year, but looking at the, the films that are out May, June, July of next year, of course, a lot of these are going to go back because of the strike. You know, Deadpool 3 potentially has a shot, potentially, you know, especially when you throw Hugh Jackman into the equation. But I think it's going to be Despicable Me 4. If I'm honest with you, I'm not kidding. I think it's going to be despicable me for. I think those movies are licenses to print money, and um, it's. Uh, I think animated movies are going to be the ones that kind of push the envelope in that regard. I think. Dare I say, Joker folia de, which. No. <laughs> First one made a billion. This one is going to be batshit and a musical and have Lady Gaga in it as well. The press tour, like, please get the strike sorted before Joker Folia Deux because the things that Lady Gaga said on the House of Gucci press tour and now the things she's going to say about Harley Quinn, she's already, there was always already the thing about, like, she doesn't want to be called yeah. Stephanie on the set of the film or, what was it? Lee. She wanted to be called she Lee. She wanted to be called Lee yeah. the whole time she was shooting that movie. Genuinely, the, the sort of thing where, like, here's a, ran, uh, like a, a random thing, but with massive stars, and it's just got this weird appeal, and you could do a huge press tour around it, and the other one was a huge hit. I can see that being, like, a freak success in that way. 
Yeah, I don't know when it's coming out though. That's the thing. I don't think it's going to come out before Despicable Me Four. And I'm going to pin my I'm going to pin my my colors to the mast there for, for that one. I think that's 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 going to be the one. I don't know that, that anything in the MCU does it next year. Maybe the new Captain America movie, but uh, I think they're they're keeping their powder dry for the next Avengers films. Um, and I don't think they'll do it uh, anywhere close to Infinity War and Endgame either, because the the paradigm is shifting. Everything is shifting. Fucking terrifying. Uh, right. We have times as the angry clock for one last question. And Ben is going to choose, and he's going to choose someone towards the back of the room from the left of the room, aren't you, Ben? Yeah, this guy with his arm tentatively. Yeah, he's put his arm down. That was up. He's waving. Yeah, this guy. Hello, thank you. Um, just wanted to ask if you could make, remake any movie, um, but the only thing is you can only use your own money to make it. What <laughs> My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. <laughs> Where we just go to Greece. We would just married. go to Greece. <laughs> yeah, I'm game. No, I'm, you are. I'm warning you, halfway through, I'm turning it into Mamma Mia 3. <laughs> <laughs> Better that than the Nun 2, I'm saying. So. I mean, yeah. Uh, what is the cheapest movie ever made? Clerks? I will fund a remake of Clerks. I'll make it even cheaper than last time. <laughs> I mean, I mean, what could I afford? What could you afford, Helen? I, I mean, like, I'm trying to think, like, El Mariachi? Robert Rodriguez <laughs> uh, sold part of himself to medical experiments for that movie. Yeah. I think it's been fairly well documented. I'm not willing to do that. No, I'm not... Well, hopefully we, can, we don't have to actually sell parts of our body to make the film, like, it's with our own funds. But maybe, like, he didn't... Wasn't it, like... That, I don't know. I think you should bear Man, This in seems mind. like a lot of money to be paying for something that already exists. We all work for Empire. Yeah. Mm. We have no money. No. <laughs> I've got an idea. This reminds me of a film that I need to revisit and remember if it was actually good or not. I remember it fondly, which is Be Kind Rewind. Yes. They, have to, mm. they wipe all the, the videotapes in the video shop. God, that film must be old. And then they have to like shoot and remake all of the films in the video shop. So yeah. what I'm going to do is I'm going to make my own Swedish version of that film about them having to make all the other films That's a good one. in the video shop. Ooh, or how about Buried, right? So all you need is a box. Why do I get and the impression I'm going to be in snake. it? I could do that. I could probably buy a box. I think. I'll check my bank account, but I think I could buy a box. I think I could get Ryan Reynolds. Uh, <laughs> we know he hangs around Wrexham an awful lot. We could, we could do what they do to him in Buried, which is they basically drug him, stick him in a box. We could do that with could Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> we just need to... Wait, no, we need train tickets to Wrexham. I think that's quite expensive. I don't even know if that's a real place. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Feels like something they made up for a Disney program. <laughs> no, I know that Wrexham's real. Wales, on the other hand. <laughs> totally not. I think we should drug Ryan Reynolds. That's your lawyer, Chris. No, it's okay. I think we should kidnap Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, I can. And stick him in a box. Uh, okay, well, I just have some notes. We'll talk about it after the show, okay? Okay. okay. James, I don't like this plan. We're going to get to Ryan Reynolds before they do. And then he's going to take us to Taylor Swift and then they can oh. do whatever the fuck they want. Benjamin, we have a plan. <laughs> now that movie would make a billion dollars. 
the box office. Uh, it would have to be because that's the ransom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he could pay it. He could. <laughs> he could. He's got a lot of money, hasn't he? He's a lot Hang of on, money. are we actually going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> Again, as your lawyer, no, we are not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of liking this idea. Did you know, Chris, that we review Welcome to Wrexham on the latest episode of the Pilot TV podcast? Absolutely true. James, I neither knew nor cared. <laughs> How is it? Is it good? I didn't understand what was going on. That's the Welsh for you. <laughs> the king is in it. This is absolutely true. The king? The king is in it. Yeah. Like Elvis. Of what? No, yes, that's right. <laughs> Austin Butler turns up and goes to watch... Rick. No, it's not. The With actual... Tom Hardy. I Breaking out. <laughs> Where's he from? He's from Wales. <laughs> you sound like Norman Price. <laughs> the angry clock. <laughs> it's it's, oh, it's just the flashing to, it's, turned, it's turned to three sixes, which I think is the universal sign for get the fuck off the stage before we send Valak after you. How much more time do we have? None. Uh, we have. Hey. Oh, dear. Right, time for another four questions. Uh, no, we won't do this because the good people at King's Place have homes to go to and families to see. That's if we don't get to them first. Uh, right. Uh, let me just see if there's anything else we need to talk about. Oh, we're doing another show, aren't we? We are. We yes, are. On, on, is it Thursday? On th- <laughs> I should know this. <laughs> Is Ben's not going to be part of it. Ben no. is going to be in Toronto, um, yep. which is weird because that's not where Ryan Reynolds is, Ben. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like Ben's getting his alibi ready. <laughs> oh, dear. Ryan Reynolds follows me on Twitter. Did you know that? Well, he not did. anymore! Because <laughs> I'm going to DM him tonight going, meet me under the bridge. <laughs> At 12.30, come alone. Bring, bring your own box. <laughs> bring, bring, bring your own box and a billion dollars in, un, in unmarked bills. <laughs> He's signed the kidnapper. But we will be back here on Thursday. <laughs> well, you will be. No, I think I'll no. be in custody. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it ties in because we're going to be guests of the Drunk Women Solving Crimes Presumably podcast. not this crime, though. I mean, at the rate we're going, who knows? It was Ben. <laughs> it was Chris Hewitt in Wrexham with the rope. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was... Anyway, so if you're free, do come yeah. along. Yes, it's do be come fun. along. It will be fun. It'd be, it's, it's drunk women and teetotal film nerds solve crime. Can I you believe know. none of us are drunk? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm drunk. <laughs> I feel like I'm drunk on podcast joy. And that joy is about to be ripped away from us, folks, because that's it. The show is over. Yeah. It is time yeah. to wrap this bad boy up, as I will be saying Richard Armitage alone should be a cautionary tale. Never, ever answer a DM from, 
from me. Uh, that's Richard Armitage, who is not on this week's podcast. <laughs> he totally was. He totally was. He ran in here. Uh, I should read this stuff out, shouldn't I? Okay, that's it. That is it. We're done. Uh, that's it for this week's Empire Podcast, recorded live at King's Place. Uh, join us next week for... <laughs> Join us next week for uh, Drunk Women Empire. Drunk Women Solving Empire. Drunk Empire Solving Crime. Drunk Empire Solving... <laughs> that's... No, that's, no, that's unfortunate. Uh, drunk Women Solving... There's an amazing podcast called Drunk Women Solving Crime uh, in which drunk women solve crime and they've invited us on as their guests on Thursday night, back here, 7pm. I'm going to be in lucky voice until then. Uh, that's establishing an alibi. Uh, I'm going to be in lucky voice for four full days. Um, and then we'll be back here doing that. That's going to be a lot of fun. But join us next week on the regularly recorded podcast where we'll be joined by... Who have I written down? Michael Green, who is... Wow, fucking hell. <laughs> whose family are here tonight. <laughs> who is the producer of the brand new slice of Poirot. Tash and all a haunting in Venice. Il est aussi le screenwriter, yes. n'est-ce pas? Um, oui, mm. oui. <laughs> Chouette. Uh, merde. Uh, and maybe someone else cool on that podcast as well. I don't know. <laughs> I only book the show. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, anyway, in the meantime, all that remains for me to say is uh, thank you so much to everyone who supplied these spot prizes. Uh, it's a very short list. Sony Pictures Home Entertainment gave us the Spider-Man Blu-rays, and Nick DeSimlian gave us the books. Um, and and Disney Versity gave us oh, some Disney posters. Versity. To be fair, the BFI gave us all the Disney swag when we won the Disney quiz, and then we gave it out at our podcast, and then we hadn't given it all out yet. So it thanked the BFI, I guess, who I think were given it by Disney in the first place. Thank you, Disney. <laughs> Hooray! Confusing. I don't know what's happening anymore. Uh, Thank you. Uh, anyway, we have to thank Zoe, Becca, Sally, and the incredible team at King's Place. Thanks, guys. <laughs> good news, folks. We only overran by four hours tonight, which is good. Uh, we want to thank you guys for coming. Of course, we could not do this without you. We, 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 we actually, no, we could. We could, but we probably shouldn't, and that's the important thing. So thank you so much for coming. It really does mean a lot. Thank you. I am contractually obligated to thank these three fucking dillweeds. Um, sorry, my colleagues have such lethal cunning. Ben Travis. Thank you. <laughs> James Dyer. And Helen O'Hara. Totally. And weirdly, Falak, the nun who is standing in the corner there. That's enough for me. I'm off to slide into the DMs of another big name actor and ask him to appear in the pod. This is something I actually wrote down. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I wrote this down earlier on. This is part of my script. Nobody is safe. Nobody. I'm coming for you, Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
Wings and Grizz! Woo! Hi, guys. Thank you so much for coming. See you next time. Good night.